One of the questions every little kid wants to ask is, where is Jesus? According to our scripture reading today on Ascension Sunday, Jesus is somewhere up in the clouds. Even early Christian art has a hard time depicting this whole scene of the Ascension. Here's an ivory plaque uh, that's currently in Munich that is dated somewhere around 400. This might be the earliest depiction of the ascension we have in, in Christian art. And I mean, I just love how like Jesus is walking up the backs like he's on some kind of mosh pit to heaven or something. And here's another one um, with Jesus's feet hanging out of the sky called creatively, wait for it, the Ascension of Christ. It's uh, painted in 1513 by the German Hans von Kumbach. In reality, the punch of the ascension has a lot less to do with where Jesus is and a lot more to do with who Jesus is and what he's doing. How we'd like to know right now, right? Because we're in a serious mess here in our current lives. The pandemic has turned everything upside down and it sure seems like Jesus is absent or unconcerned or heaven forbid, forbid a pastor would ever say this, but maybe is Jesus somehow unable to help us in our situation? I'll come back to questions like that in a little bit, but I don't think we really need the opinion of a mid-40s pastor in times like these, or maybe ever. I think what we need and what I need is the Word of God. And thankfully, in the early 60s AD, uh, there was a church going through very difficult circumstances as well, the church in Ephesus. And it's in Asia Minor, and Paul wrote one of his finest, most encouraging, theologically dense uh, letters ever, outside of Romans, I would say, to this Ephesian church. Now, what were they going through? Well, of course, they were oppressed by the Roman Empire. Um, the standards of life were extremely low in Ephesus during the first century. Death and disease were commonplace, and people were wondering, where's Jesus? Does he care? Is he able to help? And how does he fit in with the pantheon of gods and goddesses and spiritualists and magicians and all the kinds of people that were filling Ephesus? And to these questions, Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. In these uncertain times, here's some good news, some ascension news, that Jesus is on the throne and that he reigns. If you have your Bible, um, I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease in giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, both in this time and in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all 
in all. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, risen and reigning, ascended and at the right hand of the Father. We've just read cognitively that you are enthroned above in heaven. But deep in our emotions and in our experience, God, we long to see how your sovereignty, how your power will come to bear in our situation and our time and our lives. Holy Spirit, would you open this word to us from the Apostle Paul and help the truth of it take root in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. Amen. What a prayer, right? That Paul prays over the church and even prays over us right now. It's full of hope. It's full of power. And so let's just take a few minutes breaking down this prayer so we can kind of understand what Paul is saying. Uh, Paul knows, first and foremost, that, that true hope does not come from mere information, right? Like he knows that we need more than information. We need revelation. We need Jesus to reveal this reality inside us. And so he doesn't say Jesus ascended and at the right is at the right hand of God. So don't worry. He's got this. Don't just take a nap. What Paul does is he prays that the risen and reigning Jesus would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. Paul is not praying that we would know more stuff about God, that we would all sign up for a theology class, although that probably wouldn't hurt in today's day and age. But see, in Hebrew thought, to know someone was a relational term. It, it was to know with intimacy, not just know something about them. So he develops this idea in the next line. I'm quoting, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, there are three Greek words in there that I think you'll probably recognize because of their English equivalents, okay? So let's start with the heart. The Greek word is cardia, like cardio or cardiac or cardiologist. You get the point. To us, that's typically when we say heart, it's either an organ, right, that pumps blood with two atrium and two ventricles, runs on electrical impulses, or we think of a heart like the shape of a heart on Valentine's Day that evokes emotion. But in the biblical thinking, um, the heart, of course, is more than just a blood pump, and it's more than just emotions. It is the center of what makes us a human being. The heart was seen as the foundation of the whole person, spiritual life, emotional life, physical vitality, even mental thought. And it's where they believe that the origins of all of our thoughts and our personhood came from. So the heart is the center of our will. It's the center of who we are. Then there's another word here, the Greek ophthalmos. So when you need work done on your eyes, what kind of doctor do you see? An ophthalmologist, right? So Paul talks about the eyes of the heart. Again, in ancient thought, eyes were thought to be one way that you brought in truth or reality. It's as if like the light of what you're seeing comes in through the eye and into the heart. So Paul prays that the ophthalmos, the eyes of your cardia, your heart, would be enlightened from the third Greek word here, your 
photizo, or uh, that's where we get the word photon or photograph. It means light. And so if our hearts are the seat of our identity, and if what we believe and the way we live is based on what is in our heart, then Paul is praying that our eyes, which feed our heart, would be full of light and truth and reality. The idea is that our hearts are darkened with false information and with fear and grief and anger. And even those of us who have been following Jesus a long time feel like we can get easily get calloused to the good news that Jesus is King. And sometimes we don't just, we don't really believe um, that Jesus is on the throne. We, we, we say it with our mouths, but we don't live as though it were true. If you haven't seen the miniseries Chernobyl, I, I highly recommend it. Not only is it a masterful piece of storytelling, but it has some fantastic social commentary. And there's this one scene in, in the show where uh, the Soviet Central Committee is meeting in like a conference room. Chernobyl nuclear power plant is on fire. The core is exposed to the world. But so far, they've come to understand that none of the, none of the Western world knows what's going on, right? So Gorbachev and the Soviet leaders are, are happy that no one else knows that there's this catastrophe going on in their country. But as the meeting goes on, a, a wire comes in, a word comes in that the U.S. Has, um, has a spy plane and they've seen Chernobyl wide open. And that Sweden and Germany and all these other Western countries now know that there's a catastrophe. And Gorbachev says this line, Do you not know that our power comes from the perception of our power? Do you know how long it will take to fix this? Let me say it again. Don't you know that our power comes from the perception of our power? Now, Gorbachev is upset about this, right? And his concern is not how to more quickly fix Chernobyl nuclear power plants spewing radiation into the atmosphere. His concern is damage control for public relations. Gorbachev knew that in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s when this all took place, that the Soviet Union was a house of cards that the glue holding this whole house together was empty propaganda, and the Chernobyl disaster simply exposed a weakness that was already there. Now, in a similar way, COVID-19 has exposed us. We've been left out to dry. Our smoke and mirrors that fooled us into thinking we were so strong have been removed. And those areas that many of us felt so competent and confident in have been tested and found wanting. Whether it was our, our faith in the economy, or our faith in our place in the world, or our faith in the assumption of, of a certain level of public health and safety, even our faith in the way that many of us relied on religious activity as opposed to actual faith and intimacy in Jesus. It's been found wanting. And the last thing we need right now, I think, is to just go back to normal, whatever that was. We need what Paul prays over the Ephesians more than just getting back to normal. That the love of Christ, that our adoption into his family as sons and daughters, that Jesus is summing up all things and making all things new, that it would reach, this message would reach our heart. And as it reaches our heart, that it would transform us from the inside out. 
Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be filled with light, specifically that we would find hope in three things. First, hope in his calling. Let's face it, we're pretty egotistical people. I mean, we think a lot about ourselves. We want to know, even as Christians, right? We want to know our calling. We want to know our personality type. We want to know what we should be doing with our lives. All of these desires uh, to know about ourselves have their place and are important. But let me say this as clearly as I can. Knowing who we are pales in comparison to knowing whose we are. Okay? So Paul wants us to place our hope not in the fact that we understand our Enneagram number. He wants us to hope in the fact that we are called out of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In the ancient world, there was very little genuine hope. I've mentioned in past sermons just how, the how bad the quality of life was for the average city dweller in the ancient Roman world. Disease decimated populations every few years. I mean, just took people out. Fires were common. Death was everywhere. And if not death, then chronic sickness and fleas and rashes and open sores and toothaches. Man, I hate a toothache. Dismemberment was common. But the physical conditions of life in these cities, that wasn't even the worst of it. The worst part was the hopelessness that there, there was no civil or social or religious movement at the time to really deal with all this pain and suffering outside of Judaism. And people believed, like, like the Ephesian native people who had just come to Christ in the church, they believed that whatever happened to them was fated and scripted by the gods. They lived in constant fear and resignation that life was hard and random, and the best hope that people had was just to escape it as long as they possibly could without pain. Okay, Klein Snodgrass, a New Testament scholar, remarks that a common epitaph on people's graves in the Roman world was, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That is utterly depressing. How we need to hear that we are called by God to be his people, and how we need that message to take roots in our heart. Now, second, Paul wants us to hope in the fact that we are God's inheritance, that God, our adoptive father, doesn't just bring us into his family as some charity case, right? But he sees us as his inheritance. He so highly values us that he uses that language as the people I'm adopting into my family are my treasure. They're my inheritance. They are the apple of my eye, right? You are cherished in the eyes of God. You are called to be his inheritance, his representatives on earth. And third, and this is a big one, Paul wants us to hope in God's power toward us who are believers, right? This, this is a big one because unless God is able to do all of the wonderful things that, that Paul is talking about, right? Unless God is actually able to adopt us and to forgive us and to protect us and to give us hope, then it's all just a bunch of empty words. 
There is no hope in our being chosen and adopted and redeemed and forgiven. There's no hope in all things being summed up in Christ. There's no good news in being called or being God's inheritance if God is unable to do these things. And Paul knows this, and he knows much more than this, right? And and so the people of Ephesus, like so many other places in the Roman world, were deeply superstitious and fearful of spiritual powers. In Ephesus, they believed that their guardian was the goddess Artemis. Each city-state had their own patron deities whom they were constantly trying to bribe and to make sacrifices to in order to be protected. And their religion was an economy of fear and an exchange of sacrifices for goods and services. So Paul reminds us that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the one that we are to place our hope in. Because if he can take a man who was crucified, dead for three days, resurrect his body into a new resurrection body, like one like we've never seen before, one that doesn't break down. And then he can cause him to ascend and to reign with him in the heavenly realm. Then he can do anything he wants and he can fulfill his promises to us. This is ascension language right here in Ephesians 1. It's not describing Jesus's geographical location, but his authority to sit at God's right hand. And it means the same power and authority that the Father has, the Son now has. And this Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is above everyone and everything for all time. Now, evil spiritual forces are real, but notice how little description there is in the Bible about these forces. Whenever you see them mentioned in the New Testament, it's in the context of being cast out or defeated by Jesus. And that tells me we need to respect them, but we don't need to fear them if we're in Christ. All this power of God in Jesus that Paul speaks of, it's not some kind of new thing. Paul is drawing upon ancient Israel and the story of ancient Israel. And the plan has always been for the Son of God to emerge from the nation of Israel through the line of Abraham and to give himself in death only to reign at the Father's right hand. Ephesians 1, 22 says that the Father put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. This is language from Psalm 8 where all things were supposed to be under our feet, meaning under our care, not us stomping on everything. We were supposed to care for the world and for one another as we lived in relationship with God. But ever since Adam and Eve broke that relationship, we have been failing in new ways, creative ways, over and over again for every generation. Jesus is the one who does what Adam and Eve and Israel and we could not do. And now in Christ, we're called to be his people. And it is God's power who raised Jesus from the dead who accomplishes all of this. Amen. That is good news because that means you don't have to accomplish it. And neither do I. So now what? Life is really hard right now for most of us. Things have been turned upside down. Our weaknesses are being exposed. And that's the reality. But Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 reminds us of an alternate reality, a realer reality, I guess you would say. 
that Jesus is ascended and he's on the throne and he's for us. And so here are two practical responses for us to do next or to be next. First of all, we can pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians 1, this very text that we've been covering right now. Pray it. Mean it. Long to mean it if you can't mean it. Pray it for yourselves. Pray it for the church. Pray it for people that you love and that you care about. If you pray that prayer, imagine if the the risen and reigning Jesus makes that come about in our hearts and minds. Pray for our eyes to be filled with the light of God. Pray that we would be filled with hope. Pray for confidence in the one who is seated above every spiritual power, above every economic power, above every viral and biological power over the course of history itself. And second, we're about ready to enter into a time of healing prayer, where we can bring the full force of Paul's prayer to bear on our situation and the situation in the world. So how might you need to invite the ascended and reigning Jesus into your situation in this moment? I'm going to be handing things over to Roy Taylor, who's going to uh, introduce this time of healing prayer uh, with a testimony about some healing in his own life. Then the Wilsons are going to play some music, some instrumental music, and that'll be an opportunity for you and I to pray right where we're at, um, in your home uh, or wherever you are. If you want to pray longer than the song lasts, you have the power to pause it and to pray as long as you like. Uh, I invite you into this time to meet with the risen and reigning Jesus. Bless you.